Welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at the Institute and your host for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, we're joined by Mark Rucci. During summer 2020, IPA appointed Mark as a senior fellow advising the Recover Delaware Initiative on Inclusive Economic Development. Mark and I spoke on August 17th, 2020. In this first of two episodes with Mark, we covered his work on economic inequalities at both the London School of Economics and a venture capital firm. And we talked about the need for inclusive approaches to economic and social recovery in Delaware. Let's get to the conversation. So, Mark, thanks for joining me today. Really appreciate it. And it's good to to see you by Zoom, at least. Yeah, Troy, thanks for having me. Uh, It's great to be reconnected on this front, and uh, I hope things are going well. Yeah, absolutely. We're happy to have you on board to help out with Recover Delaware, but you're not in Delaware at the moment. Could Could you give us a sense of where you are and what you're working on at the moment? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be working with Recover Delaware, but at the moment, I am kicking off kind of another chapter uh, in my academic career at the University of Michigan Law School. So I just uh, moved to Ann Arbor last week, and things are going well. My first time being in Ann Arbor, and it's an, uh, like I was saying earlier, it's a beautiful place uh, at a beautiful time of the year. So I'm just trying to take that in right now. Well, if you can sort out if they copied our football helmets or if we copied theirs, that would be (laughs) good. I think that would answer a lot of questions, clear up a lot of myths, but obviously a lot of connections um, between Michigan and and UD. So it's it's great to have you on board. And I've kind of been joking to people that even though you're not uh, in state, you know, it's a great year to have a virtual appointment with somebody because everybody's virtual anyway. So yeah, you couldn't have planned a better way to, uh, to bring me on board right now. <laughs> yeah, I wish I didn't have to go to this extreme for sure. But we wanted, you know, I think we wanted to introduce you to folks today and talk about, you know, why your background and think your educational background and your work experience is really suited to helping people think through some of these recovery issues. And I wanted to get into kind of some of the meaty stuff here, which uh, when you talk about inequalities, those are really uh, meaty topics and weighty topics. And I know shortly, a few years after you graduated from UD, you went to the London School of Economics and really wanted to study inequalities. And I, I would wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you made that choice and what your big takeaways were. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That was a a time in my life I really felt as though I was at a crossroads. Um, I was wrapping up my time at UD School of Public Policy, working in the state legislature as a legislative fellow, actually on the House Education Committee, at a time when there was really intense focus and scrutiny on education policy coming out of Dover, um, not unlike today in the state of Delaware. Um, I had always envisioned my next step would be attending law school and working at some intersection of public policy and the law. Um, So around the same time, I had recently read this book called Capital in the 21st Century. It's by a French economist you may have heard of named Thomas Piketty, kind of, you know, hit the charts, was a rock star book at the time. Uh, And in it, he was making this case that wealth and capital accumulation, particularly in Western democracies like the United States and Canada, Australia and the UK, that were reaching all-time highs, and that levels of income and wealth were eroding democracy and preventing millions of people from engaging in the economy and reaching their full potential if it continued to be concentrated in the hands of a few people. So his arguments really stuck with me. 
you know, fast forward to the end of that year, the London School of Economics actually decided to launch a new master's program all focused on social and economic inequality. And they actually um, had Thomas Piketty come uh, and be one of the faculty members to kind of bring that program to life. So I thought, you know, if I got in, it'd be something I couldn't pass up. So I threw together an application and was lucky enough to be accepted. And as you kind of mentioned, inequality has really become somewhat of a buzzword across the policy and political arena. And it kind of means any difference in treatment or outcome between or within groups. And I feel like it's used pretty extensively up and down the spectrum of public policy and politics. And it's really kind of been integrated into our common vocabulary. But I think sometimes we forget how truly complex some of the concepts actually are when we talk about inequality and we don't necessarily go further with it. So this program was really a joint effort across the London School of Economics, across you know almost a dozen different departments. So when you think about bringing the expertise of faculty in race and gender, geography, economics, social policy, statistics, law, all looking at kind of the interdisciplinary nature of what these inequalities actually look like. And that's something that I think I took with me to this day. And, and, you know, while I was there, I was lucky enough to be, you know, hired as a researcher to a faculty member in this think tank called the Center for Analysis of Social Exclusion. And some of the most teachable moments were writing those papers and reports where we focused a lot on kind of the generosity of welfare systems uh, in Europe, America, Canada, and the way in which those countries constructed their welfare systems basically determined who was eligible, how they allocated the benefits were directly related to the levels of inequality in that society. So again, it's this reminder that policy choices being made at national, state, and local levels directly impacted the way in which people were living their lives and engaging in the economy and kind of what the income and wealth distributions looked like in their countries. So, you know, I hope to continue to advocate for policies that brought about, you know, more equality for those historically marginalized groups. And LSE was an interesting place to start that. Some people might respond, particularly in the U.S. context with, you know, that inequality is kind of a feature and not a bug of, mm-hmm. of the way the U.S. market economy works. How would, how would you react to that, uh, that it's a feature, not a bug? I think it's a great question. Uh, and it's one that's often a retort to anyone who talks about, you know, reducing levels of inequality. I would say that the conversation need not start about whether any level of inequality is acceptable. Um, whether it's, you know, complete equality versus complete inequality. I, I, know, I think that kind of dichotomous conversation isn't very helpful. What we have to look at is just what level of inequality are we going to tolerate? So when you look at, just look at wealth concentration. So not about income, not about race, gender, or ability, even though they're all correlated. When you look at wealth, uh, what percentage of wealth should be concentrated in the hands of, say, the top 1% of the income distri- or of the distribution? Should it be 1%, meaning kind of relative equality? Should it be 10%, 30%, 40%? Having those kind of conversations are interesting, but they become more interesting when you look at it over time and see that, you know, in the 50s and 60s in the United States, we had much higher levels of the equality within those distributions. And then kind of in the 70s and 80s is when it started to unravel and we've become consistently more unequal over the years. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm not, and many people aren't calling for complete levels of equality within all swaths of society. But looking at the, the level of inequality is particularly interesting in context of, of the United States and whether or not we want to you know, go back to, to more levels of equality from, like I said, the 50s and the 60s. 
And of course, things we would have talked about six months ago or two years ago are, are not, they're not moot, but they're put in a different context given COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think inequality has been all, all over the newspapers and the airwaves, uh, so to speak. And we've heard a lot about the potential for the situation we're going through now to really exacerbate a lot of social and economic inequalities that were there before and are you know, made more apparent now. What do you see as some of the most striking examples of, of those inequalities that have really you know, reared their ugly head, so to speak, uh, over the last few months? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And you hit the nail on the head that our society was unequal uh, before the pandemic. And it's important to be cognizant of that. But the COVID-19 pandemic is really going to exacerbate those inequalities and then create new ones. So I think the most striking examples that we're seeing unfold are the ones we're seeing in the news every day. Millions of people are having difficulty accessing, applying for, and receiving unemployment insurance, um, sometimes due to outdated systems, even in some states that appear to be purposefully designing their systems to limit the participation of individuals in unemployment insurance programs. So this idea of wage replacement, I think, will force many of those individuals um, who are out of work due to no fault of their own to rely on debt to finance their and their family's survival. And I think that particularly, as we know, when huge swaths of the American uh, you know, citizenry are, uh, do not have robust savings, we know that kind of debt is the way that they're going to have to finance that. And I think that's going to exacerbate because of this. Another point, um, I think we'll continue to see a huge gap in learning and achievement between students in districts with ample resources to adapt to the switch to virtual and hybrid learning against those districts where resources were barely available before the pandemic. Just last week, I was reading that a Brooklyn school district um, sent out uh, information to parents asking to help fundraise for PPE and desk dividers within the school. Um, And we know that's not happening in a lot of the more affluent districts in the country. So I think that's going to make us and force us to re-examine school funding formulas and perhaps even the very nature of funding schools primarily through local property taxes um, and whether or not that's the right decision moving forward. I think we'll continue to see high levels of isolation within the elder populations um, that are going to lead to further complications in healthcare and quality of life, uh, something that is kind of talked about in terms of you know morbidity of the virus right now, but not necessarily in terms of the social isolation. We'll probably continue to see decline in hospitality and tourism industries around the country. And I think this is particularly important for communities um, in Sussex County, Delaware, and those like I grew up in in South Jersey. And we may not ever see businesses rebound, or we may need to figure out what are we going to do with many displaced workers from those industries that need to be absorbed into other parts of the economy? How do we do that thoughtfully? And then lastly, I think we're seeing an explosion of racism and anti-Chinese sentiments that have emerged at all levels of society that just should not be tolerated. And I think that is going to continue to exacerbate, particularly when certain leaders are inflaming it. You covered a lot of ground there. And I know for a lot of parents early on in the pandemic, the school system and uh, having to get a remote education was a real shock. And, um, you know, my personal perspective is no district has the resources to truly manage it because no one really knows mm-hmm. how to effectively do remote education for K-12 at large scale, particularly on short order. But you've certainly seen that certain districts are able to respond by throwing more resources at it than many others. Mm-hmm. And then when you layer on top the socioeconomic problems that are issues that kids may bring to the classroom, it's it's you know heartbreaking. <laughs> so um, you've hit on a lot there. And 
I wonder what you think IPA works mostly with state and local governments. What do you think the role is for state and locals? What, which of those issues do they really have a place in to try to craft solutions at this point? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And, and my, um, my one sentence summaries are probably not uh, doing them, each of those issues true justice. They're extremely complex. And I, I think state and local governments, including organizations like IPA and other non-state actors, can really just get into the weeds on what solutions have worked elsewhere and how those solutions would look in Delaware. It's one thing that I think not enough organizations necessarily do is that we are an incredibly large country with a lot of creative um, problem solving all across the country at the national, state, and local levels. And one thing that I think sometimes it doesn't happen enough is that organizations within states look to states that either look like them or don't look like them and try to figure out how that state has handled it before and not necessarily do a copy and paste into Delaware or a copy and paste into New York, but really just figure out what would that solution look like here? Do we think it would work? Do we want that type of solution? Is that kind of what we're, what we're aiming for? And then beginning to marshal the resources around that solution to help try to either pilot it or scale it uh, across the state. I think IPA and, and other organizations like it can really do the legwork of figuring out what is working across the country in other communities and then helping to distill that information down for policymakers who oftentimes are probably not as hyper-focused on what other states are doing and are more hyper-focused on what's happening in their district and what's happening in the state legislature. And I kind of see that as being really exacerbated right now because people are you know, rightfully focused on the immediate response of keeping people health, healthy mm-hmm. and safe and educated. And it's tough to look beyond your boundaries or look to new, for new ideas at that moment when you're just trying to keep the trains running, so to speak. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that I was so drawn to IPA and your creation of Recover Delaware. It was that we are in a moment um, where we need to be hyper-focused on individuals that are hurting the most. But at the same time, we have to be able to look beyond the horizon and say, let's re-examine the way we were doing things before to see if they're working for most people. And I think this moment of Recover Delaware is not just for immediately providing resources and solutions to problems, but it's anticipating future problems and correcting for problems that have been around for a very long time. And I think that's kind of exciting in a way. Yeah, that's the hope. It's it's hopeful. It's parallel and complementary of all those necessary mm-hmm. response things. I want to make a hard turn here, Mark, because your your life story kind of demands it. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't think of you know, the logical next step of, you know, studying inequalities at the London School of Economics is joining a venture capital fund. But that seems to be the choice that you made. And I'm wondering, you know, what made that an appealing career move for you? Well, it's funny. Uh, yeah, you and me both don't think that that was necessarily a logical progression. But um, so in, in no way, I'm going to shoehorn the decision squarely into this answer that gives, you know, the listeners clarity on, on what I was thinking. But What I will say first is that I think for each of us, our career paths are wandering and difficult to rationalize and explain looking forward. I think everyone kind of goes through that. But, you know, to go back to kind of how I ended up in in VC, I will admit that a few years back, I didn't have a real deep familiarity with venture capital. It's not something that was regularly talked about, as you know, in public policy classes. So most of my knowledge was actually gained from watching Shark Tank. You know, here's some money for an equity stake in my company. I will admit it's probably a little bit more complex than that. But I think it's, it's good to start kind of at the firm I was at first and then kind of talk about why I think that was important. 
because I think it'll draw draw that line from LSE to to where I was. So Revolution is the name of the firm, is a venture capital firm based in Washington, D.C., which was founded by uh, the co-founder of AOL, America Online, this guy named Steve Case. And the goal for Revolution was to find and invest in companies that would be as transformative in their industries as AOL was during the internet revolution. And so one of the funds and teams within Revolution was called Rise of the Rest. And the premise on which Rise of the Rest was based was pretty straightforward. So last year in the United States, um, 80% of all venture capital investment in America uh, went to three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. Not that surprising. And within those states, I'll surprise you even less, it's really just going to three regions. So it's going to Silicon Valley, New York City, and Boston. So Steve and the Rise of the Rest team think that as a country, if we are concentrating our investment so heavily in just three places, we are really missing out on a whole lot of great ideas and great entrepreneurs uh, who don't happen to live in those places. And what does that mean for our country? Well, it probably means we're missing out on you know, life-saving or life-changing innovations. We're concentrating capital into the hands of fewer and fewer people, most of whom are you know, white men who are living in those areas are the ones who are really receiving venture capital dollars, if you look at the data. And three, we're not creating jobs in the parts of the country that have seen huge job loss, particularly after the Great Recession. So why this uh, need to focus on venture capital startups and not kind of corporate innovation or, or mom and pop businesses, so to speak? I think that's a really good question. And, and it's definitely kind of the, one of the pieces of the puzzle. So there's this organization in Kansas City, Missouri called the Kauffman Foundation. Really great in terms of looking at data and research on entrepreneurship. They released a study that says startups, so high growth young companies, account for the majority of net new job creation in America. So I think that's somewhat counterintuitive because I think most people think it's large corporations or small businesses that would drive those numbers. But if you think about it and you kind of look at the data, corporations are large job creators. If you look at the Fortune 500 every year, you'll actually see one of those companies go under and another one take its place. Um, so they're not necessarily creating net new jobs. They're kind of replacing the jobs within those big corporate corporate engines. You think of you know Facebook is on the rise and JC Penney or Sears is on the decline when you look at those big companies. And with small businesses, while they account for a lot of jobs in the United States, they aren't necessarily net new job creators. And I think an easy example is to see when one restaurant goes out of business, it's usually replaced with another restaurant who employs around the same amount of people. So if you look at high growth startups that go from 10 employees to 100 employees to 1,000 employees over the course of five years or so, that's what's really accelerating job creation in a community and a region. So Rise of the Rest was formed to find those entrepreneurs building those companies in places like Albuquerque or Boise or Cleveland or Birmingham, Wilmington, Delaware, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, and so on. So it's this $300 million seed fund that has already backed 140 companies in 70 cities across the country. So it has a huge geographic footprint. And the idea is that if you plant enough seeds across the country in these cities where investors aren't spending enough time because they're on the coasts, you're going to find the next big breakout successful company that's going to hire many people and hopefully remain rooted in that city. And there's plenty of examples of those companies across the country. And you know, another point that I think is helpful to underscore 
is when you get, get away from the traditional VC markets and really spend time in communities, you find that the diversity of entrepreneurs is greater as well. So you have black founders, female founders, immigrant founders, first-time founders who are w- working on really important problems and have the domain expertise to do it. And so finding them in other parts of the country and working with those entrepreneurs is very rewarding because it can be transformational for them, but also for the city in which they live. And I think those factors not only show that revolution and rise of the rest are much different than a traditional VC fund. You know, it's not an impact fund, as you've probably heard of. It's a traditional venture capital fund. Um, But kind of tying it all up to inequalities, the types of companies that we were looking to invest in were not like dating apps and social networking platforms like you see kind of coming out of Silicon Valley. Um, We were looking to invest in what Steve Case called these third wave type solutions. I know we've talked about uh, Steve's book, uh, The Third Wave. And he talks about kind of the, the three different waves. First wave was really getting people online. So, you know, I think AOL connecting you to the internet. The second wave was about connecting to each other on top of the internet through apps. So Facebook connecting me to other friends, Twitter connecting me to news organizations, Uber connecting me to transportation, kind of the apps that were built on top of the internet. And the third wave that we are in now is using the internet to solve really complex problems in traditional analog industries. So integrating technology and connecting this into farming, into education, into healthcare delivery and transportation of goods and services, into banking and microfinance. Those were the ideas that could really improve people's lives. Um, So if you're going to invest in ag tech, why would you go to New York City to look for a founder? You would probably better spend your time in St. Louis or Iowa uh, if you're going to look for those companies. Or if you want to invest in the future of transportation and freight and logistics, as you know very well, you're probably better off going to Chattanooga, Tennessee or Memphis, Tennessee, which has a lot of rich history because um, FedEx is headquartered right outside Memphis, Tennessee. So those are the confluence of factors that made me think that the tie was strong enough to dive in and join Revolution and Rise of the Rest and spend time in parts of the country I otherwise had not been to and try to help usher in this new wave of more inclusive innovation that was hopefully going to benefit a lot of people. And so this isn't a book review, but um, one of the things that was real striking about the third wave book by Steve Case was in the first few pages, he talks about those three phases of companies and how they related to the internet. and. The third phase, I I think, is really interesting. It's just kind of it's baked into the cake now. It's like if you're not uh, a startup that's using the Internet, uh, it's it's, it's like saying 50 years ago, we wouldn't have a telephone at our business to to answer the phone when customers happen. So it's just the name of the game. And as you said, there's these regions that are good at freight or good at agriculture, where where else would you want to be if you're going to be market testing, seeing the flaws in your approach? than in those locations. And now internet is you know baked in, technology is baked in in a way that it wasn't 30 years ago, let's say. So it's a really interesting approach. And the book is recommended by Troy, at least, <laughs> uh, for an overview of, of kind of where we've come and where, where we're going on the startup front. Coming back to Delaware, we've tagged your involvement in Recover Delaware around this notion of inclusive economic development. What does that term mean to you in terms of how folks go about approaching economic development? So I think it starts with being honest about identifying what groups have traditionally been left out of the benefit in our communities. And then intentionally crafting new policies that not only bring those groups into the fold, 
but address those entrenched inequities that existed for a long time. Um, so if you take that approach and you apply it to economic development, I think it's important to better integrate the welfare of stakeholders and less so of shareholders into the decision-making process about who benefits from economic development policy in the state. So that framework would drive us to create, you know, number one, well-paid employment within sustainable industries that two, provide a quality of life and healthcare that enables kind of a level of economic dignity that was formerly not available. And then three, with a particular emphasis on communities of color. And I think that would be a true kind of mapping back to the framework that you would set out at the beginning of what does inclusive economic development look like? And if we begin with those intentions during the crisis and this moment of rebuilding, I think the state will be better because of it as policies start to be proposed, adopted, and then rolled out. And you're among the many non-native Delawareans that's kind of felt the pull of Delaware over the years. I'll put myself in that bucket too. Um, and you've got a stated intent to make your way back here uh, after your time in Michigan. What is it about Delaware that's appealing to you? Yeah, I think, you know, Delaware, particularly the university community, but also down uh, in Dover, where I spent some time, people are just extremely welcoming and kind. And I think the state offers a sense of openness to outsiders, as you probably can attest to, that if you're willing to work hard and you care about long-term success of the state, that they're willing to put you to work uh, and kind of bring you into the fold. And that may be true in a lot of places, but in a community as small as Delaware, I think one realizes it more quickly and then can see the fruits of one's hard work as quickly as well. And thinking about recovery that, you know, Delaware faces, but really everyone, you know, faces at the moment, those challenges around economic and social recovery. Uh, what do you see as the big opportunities for Delaware to distinguish itself in both kind of how it approaches those challenges and what outcomes we see for Delawareans? It's a great question. I think, you know, distinguishing the state is important, but I'll add that, you know, moving forward, I think that should not be viewed as state isolation. I think state isolation is the wrong approach. So no one state, even the largest and most well-resourced is going to be able to go it alone. So as Delaware marshals a recovery plan, I think it must also look to, to partner with other state and local governments in New Jersey and Maryland, Pennsylvania and New York, and kind of create you know, the interconnectedness of state commerce, healthcare and transit, knowing that it's extremely complex and any solution that's thought and baked in one state that is going to try to scale either, you know, between states or across states is not going to be sufficient. So I think this, this idea of isolation is the wrong way to look at it. One of my former revolution colleagues always insisted that states must band together to think like super regions and lean on one another, both in their strengths and their flaws. And he always joked that when he pitches comp to companies and investors about the benefits of being in a place like Washington, D.C., he does not just pitch the nation's capital itself, even though I think that's a pretty compelling pitch. He frames the region stretching from Arlington, Virginia, up into Delaware. And I think that framing and looking at the assets across that entire region that a company could take advantage of is helpful in thinking about recovery as well. We want Delawareans to be better equipped to rebound from the next exogenous shock. But we also want to set the tone that the economy is shifting and Delaware is a leading voice in a conversation of multiple states on creating a strategy for the region that can scale. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to what comes of the work of Recover Delaware and what states do in this moment to try to look to the next 10, 20 years uh, of policymaking.
Well, Mark, we're so happy to have you, you know, engaged in Delaware again and working on recovery with us. And we hope listeners get a sense of, of why we thought that was a wise investment in bringing you aboard. And thank you for your time today and joining me for this conversation. Thanks, Troy. For more information on Mark and his work on IPA's Recover Delaware initiative, visit ipa.udel.edu to review Mark's biography and navigate to the Recover Delaware page. Thanks again for tuning into First State Insights. Reach out with any comments and be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. I hope you'll join us again soon.